Hello and welcome to Cane and Rinse, Volume 1, Issue 8. This issue, we get intimate with the most foul-mouthed hotspur since Paul Gascoigne 17 minutes into the 1991 FA Cup final. Garcia, that is, the anti-hero protagonist of Grasshopper Manufacture's action horror comedy Shadows of the Damned. Please note, there will likely be motherfucking spoilers, Hellmonkeys. And for part two, a paradigm tonal shift as we head down under for an interview with the founder and creative director of No, um, Nick Watt, to talk about his brilliant new WiiWare title, Escape Vector Chapter One, Combat Power Unleashed. I'm Leon Cox, and with me this week is Tony Atkins. How many N's and how many O's in No? That's the always, question. always two N's and three O's. That's, uh, that's what's registered Trademark. Yeah, with with the Australian, whoever it is, equivalent of company's house. Returning also, we have young Joshua Garrity. Hello there. On a new microphone, Snowball Blue. He's uh, committed to the cause. And uh, introducing a brand new contributor all the way from the US of A, it's Sean O'Brien. Hello. Listen to that. Was that American? Didn't sound enough American. (laughs) Uh, so, Shadows of the Dam then. Uh, I just finished it a few hours ago. Uh, it was a rental copy for me. I didn't buy it at the time. Um, who would like to start us off? Tell us what Shadows of the Damned is. Tony, perhaps. Oh. <laughs> Explain the story of Shadows of the Damned. No, no, no. I was thinking more as in, uh, sort of, yeah, what kind of a game is it? You know, let's, let's start with the very basics. Well, at its very core, then, it's a third-person action adventure game uh dealing with what going to hell uh, to yep. rescue your loved one yeah um and shooty shooty bang bang they're in between i'd say third person over the shoulder shooter with puzzles mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. and the, the odd puzzle and the odd mini game but mainly it's uh, it's action all the way um so i guess one of the sort of uh renowned things about this and, and probably the reason that uh, of all people, EA picked it up, um, is uh, the, the talent behind it. So um, the executive director and writer is the infamous uh, Goichi Suda, or, or Suda51. Um, Shinji Mikami is listed as creative producer, although what he actually did, I don't know if, if any of you guys know. And then on top of that, um, a lot of the humor in the game is is very Western in sensibility, as well as the sort of traditional... Um, Suda 51 style uh, scatological and sexual humor. There's also quite a few sort of gags. Um, and I, I was looking at the, the writing team. Uh, there's a guy called Massimo Guarini who used to work at Ubisoft uh, on things like Splinter Cell, Rainbow Six, and Naruto, who, who now works at Grasshopper. But there's also uh, Ross Berger is a writer, uh, a, a, has a writing credit. He, he's written for CSI and Law and & Order and uh, the Lonely Girl 15 show. And also uh, a fellow called Ted Mulkerin, who I, I assume is a gag writer for The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, which is uh, hmm. CBS. Um, TV show. You familiar with it, Sean? Uh, yeah, Craig Ferguson. Yeah, I've seen him a couple of times. He's he's good. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> so I guess uh, it's hard to um, talk about this game without kind of talking about its its stylings and uh, the way the way it uh, portrays itself. Um, so yeah, Tony's given you a brief outline of the story. Um, I've played Suda's games before, and the thing that kind of sticks out straight away is the 
huge uh, reliance on uh, immature humour. Anyone got anything to say about that? Are you a fan, Josh, or does it grate? Um, it, it depends. I think there are occasions where it is kind of chuckle-worthy, it's kind of funny, but it does wander into Duke Nukem territory every once mm. in a while. Um, and I, I don't, because I think Bayonetta managed to um, get the balance right. Um, it was, it had those kind of like filthy jokes, but um, also remembered, oh wait, people are here to play a really good game. Whereas I think um, maybe Shadows of the Dam spends a little bit too much time on those gags. Uh, specifically in one sequence um, that I'm sure we're going to talk about um, called Big Boner. Taste my big boner. Uh, 20 minutes later. I hate that <laughs> moment. Anyway, yeah, I, I'm, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Sure, what about you? Funny or not funny overall? Uh, well, I think with Shadows, because it's so blatant and in your face the entire time, I think it's the one that works the most out of anything he's done before. Like, No More Heroes was a little... It's was, it was too weird, I think, for me. To mm-hmm. actually find it funny. Killer7 was just... Uh, Bizarre. Uh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I guess that's the best word for it. Yeah. Um, but I think Shadows... It's... I don't think he was going, like Josh, you were saying about balance with, with Bayonetta. Like, I don't think balance was even in, like, close mind for him. I think he was just going all out with all his types of toilet, gross, kid humor, you know? Mm. See, I, I kind of disagree with that. I, although Killer7 and No More Heroes is impenetrable, you know, mind the gag, uh, in some respects, um, I think that there's a slightly deeper intellect there. If you look at No More Heroes in particular, you could, well, it is a, a study of uh, what video games do and what traits they do. Um, where, to me, it's almost like with this... You know, the involvement with EA and its Western versus Eastern sentimentalities and the way that um, he seemed to have been, well, you know, I, I want this game to be a success more so than just, you know, out in the East. And it seems to be very much like he, he's jumped onto that that view of what does an American audience want. And, and in many respects, I think he, he feels quite rigid and confined in what he's trying to do. And it, he goes for the simplistic humour rather than the, the maybe slightly more interesting and subjective humour. Well, it, yeah, it's less esoteric. And obviously getting those aforementioned writers that we mentioned on board was all about getting, uh, I guess, making it more accessible to a Western audience. And there's also even, um, I don't know if you know, some of it was uh, ad-libbed by the voice cast or whatever, but there's also some very sort of English gags as well, mm. particularly from uh, Johnson. Um, yeah, just to, to give people an idea who haven't played it, um, your, your sidekick throughout the game is effectively some kind of personification of a penis uh, called Johnson who becomes various weapons and a motorcycle uh, you know a familiar thing that uh, Suda has in his games Um, No More Heroes also has a a large phallic motorcycle Mm. Um, your save points are called One-Eyed Williams and to mark the fact that you've passed a checkpoint they do a shit um, so it's it's not only sexual humour, but it's also scatological. There's also a bit of um, sort of alcohol wish fulfilment or fantasy. Uh, the idea that uh, in hell drinks uh, are in fact good for you and they don't do you any limit damage. Um, and I found myself wondering both. I played through No More Heroes recently as well, and um, 
I don't know e- either, and, and you know, we don't have lawyers, <laughs> so. <laughs> um, but but uh, I believe freedom of speech is okay. Um, I find myself wondering whether uh, Suda either hates everyone, or just hates women, or just hates men, or hates straight <laughs> men, or is in the closet and a homosexual, or has a small penis, or a combination of all the above. Probably a combination. Yeah. <laughs> from the way his games uh, portray themselves, I don't, I don't know. I just I found this one in particular, and, and maybe it's just because I'm getting too old. Uh, maybe a, a, a good a dick joke is lost on me nowadays. Um, certainly Never. from from my experience <laughs> with Duke Nukem Forever, that that proved. But then that was just a terrible game. They're bad uh, dick jokes, though. But so well, they they are. But and, and maybe I need to play. Um, what is it? A bullet storm. Because mm. by the sounds of it, that bridges more of the gap between you know, good gameplay and, and dick joke humour. But I just found, I found the whole story just to be pretty too simplistic, too disjointed in the way it portrayed everything. And it, I don't know, it, it just nothing about the story itself uh, spoke to me. And although there is one or two very funny gags in there. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the thing. Like I, I didn't laugh once during Bulletstorm. I, I thought it was d- direly unfunny, whereas I did get several chuckles out of Shadows of the Damned. The end theme song for one from the demon. Yes, the uh, the post post credits <laughs> rap is hilarious. Yeah, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about that because um, he he uses the c word in that and um, twice. Again, yeah, that's... and there's 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 a, there's a few cunts in the game and uh, but weirdly there's a few uh, other words that are bleeped out such as blowjob and bollocks. Um, <laughs> I assume those those bleeps are for comedy effect. It's it's rather like the uh, the, the South Park bigger longer uncut movie isn't it in that actually it wasn't as funny when you could hear them swearing as when when they're bleeped out on the show so i, I assume that's why that was done but um turn my head anyway yeah so what, what obviously um once again um not deliberately but this is an all-male panel on on this podcast but how do we feel about the portrayal of women in this game anyone got anything to say on that um this game specifically this game, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, is there any more than just one? I guess the Sisters Grimm. Yeah, yeah, I suppose the, the portrayal of woman. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, yeah, the portrayal of Paula yeah. particularly is. is it's does she rough. Is, is she every woman in the in the uh, in the, the the sex club bit where you actually climb over the women? Is that that's yep. all her that's as well, isn't it? Yep. Okay, so yeah, uh, the portrayal of woman. Go for it. Well, it's pretty despicable, if I'm honest. Um, Like, I know Bayonetta was... I keep bringing it up because it's kind of a close comparison in terms of, like, uh, content. But um, I felt like Bayonetta did over-sexualize the main female character. But that was counterbalanced by the fact that all the men in that world were pathetic and kind of stupid and weak. And Mm. all the women were super powerful and strong and... Uh, kind of ruled the planet, whatever universe Bayonetta exists in. Whereas um, in Shadows of the Damned, Paula's a sex object and she's nothing else. There's no character to her. You never get to know who she is before she goes to hell. She's just this pretty woman who gets her nip-nips out and uh, that's about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was unsure about it. For I mean, I, I think people get annoyed when podcasts start maybe over-analyzing what games do and whether they, you know, they're being... You know, that's, whether that's, women are being that's, sexualized that's, that's what we're here to do dude and <laughs> and, and and i agree and i i think you know quite often yeah there is a an argument to be said well you know that's not 
really viable in certain games. But th- this one in particular, they do. She is just a set object. She's there as titillation. Um, and if you don't believe it, up until the point where you you go to the strip club and then you basically have to walk over a naked breast body and yeah, you know, what feels like through the mountains of her ample, ample nipples, mm. and. I just, the, the the bigger problem, the bigger issue around the story is that you never grow any affinity to her. I mean, you, you've travelled down to the depths of hell to save this woman, yet she dies multiple times in front of you, and every time she dies, you just think, oh, yeah, pulled her head off again. Um, so there's there's no, you know, there's no characterization of why you want to go and rescue her each and he every wants, time. He pretty much, he's fairly explicit about the fact that it's mm. so that he can fuck her some more. It's not, <laughs> he doesn't talk about how they have the, you know, this wonderful companionship and, and long lasting friendship. They're, they're soulmates. They talk about, you know, their, their love of nature and stuff like that. He's basically going, you know. I am always ready for my angel and you know all this stuff. So uh, I well, think he finds her in a garbage bin as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he finds her yeah. in the dumpster. Yeah. That's how the relationship starts, is in the dumpster. Yeah, um, <laughs> and at, at the end, we uh, the, the, the game kind of after he's uh, you know this is Kane and Rince. We're we're going to talk about the end already. Um, ne- inevitably, the, you know the, your only um, aim throughout the entire game your only motivation is to is to rescue her from the uh from Fleming the big bad um and then I was fooled earlier even though I'd I'd looked at the bloody achievements I killed Fleming and I was like oh cool okay and then I was thinking there's something not right here and yes of course then you have to fight uh, Paula herself who's still somewhat possessed and very angry with you for uh, not rescuing her earlier um and then in the in the uh, after the you've actually managed to do that um it's uh, it's you're told that uh, she is she is the demon bride effectively she is Fleming's mistress and and as such you will she will always be hunted by the denizens of the underworld and you will always have to fight them off. I wondered if is there a suggestion that that's why, where she, is that who she was before or is is that what's Fleming what Fleming's decided now? Isn't it implied that she's kind of? I I felt she, it was implied that she was that demon hunter, the female yeah, demon hunter the that they keep hunters. referencing all the way uh, through the game. But she doesn't do any demon hunting. She just wanders uh, around in a negligee inside the belly of a demon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one other guy, another demon hunter, does turn up briefly in the middle of the game um, before getting quickly eviscerated. Um. Yeah, a slight, I, uh, yeah, slight mystery, I guess. Um, but yes, that is the story. We have described the whole story. Um, you get her back, but she's a bit fucked up, and the game never ends. Obviously, it's left wide open for a sequel. If, but uh, normally he doesn't get to make sequels of his games. It, it, no more heroes being being an exception. But I mean, to, to touch on that before we move away from the story, I mean that's a fair point, and, and this runs all the way through the game. Is that it, it is so scatological this game? Um, it, it's like Sud has been given a, a ton of money to go and produce something, um, bring a load of his buddies along, um, and then just kind of spend the money and throw stuff at the screen. And, and instead of having an editor and, and bringing it into a, like a coherent, uh, I think sense you're, of the game. you're you're slightly confusing the uh, the um, definition of the word scatological. There, that, okay. uh, you, you're thinking of scattergun. <laughs> well, scatological means it's obsessed with uh, toiletry, toilet functions. But wouldn't I mean, be far, yeah, it wouldn't no, be you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be that far out, no. But, but I mean, but, but like you say, he brings in a number of characters and disposes of them pretty quickly. You've got that um, the marine type 
warrior guy who could have been an interesting character, but he's there for what seems like a 30-second scene, moves on, you come to the next scene, he's dead. It's almost he's, like they've moved he's, on. He's just designed to make you scared of the, of the, the next boss, who's obviously also um, foreshadowed in the uh, book that you read before fighting it. It's just, it, it's full of ideas, and none of the ideas make any coherent sense. Uh, the big bonus scene that I'm sure we'll talk about um, seems to be nothing but padding, seems like an idea that was on the pad, and they threw it in there just to mm. you know, progress the game moving further. So, I mean, it's no wonder that, you know, when you look at the story, it's very hard to piece anything together because it doesn't really make much sense. But then I guess that, you could argue, is Suda's games all along. Killer 7 doesn't really make much sense, and No More Heroes somewhat more coherent but that's <laughs> it's hardly saying similarly much. obsessed with uh, sex and uh, and uh, violence um, what about I also wanted to ask you know we're saying the portrayal of the women or the woman in the game um, what about the portrayal of men I mean you know do they do they come out any better is Garcia Hotspur actually cool or is he a, a bit of a dick I like Johnson he's alright yes. um, Johnson's funny but Garcia is a bit of a hollow vessel, to be yeah. honest. Um, he can't read for one. Bloody hell! No. Every time he reads the book, it's just like oh, fuck. Actually, sake, I thought that Johnson was the read. best, the best piece of um, voice acting in the game, other than um, Greg Ellis as Johnson and veteran Cam Clark as Christopher, the shop demon. Um, when Steve Steve Blum as Garcia Hotspur, a lot of the time, not that interesting, but. He did a really funny job of not being able to read the book, but uh, that's by the by. Yeah, that whole thing felt like almost ad-libbed, kind of. Yeah, yeah. They just kind of went back and forth with each other, and just that little after there felt really uh, real, you know, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if uh, it'd be interesting to know if, if Steve Blum and Greg Ellis playing Garcia and Johnson were able to actually riff together and actually record any of their lines as a, as a duo. Um, which isn't normally the way of doing things, but there did seem to be an actual rapport there. So, yeah, portrayal of, of men, anything to say, uh, Tony? Portrayal of Garcia. I, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly think that's probably looking a bit too deep for what this game actually offers in that respect. Well, no, but... because I, th- I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it's relevant in that we've said that uh, you know the, the portrayal of Paula is despicable, but I think it's important then to understand... If Suda, if Suda's portrayal of humanity is despicable, or whether women come off a lot worse than men, do you see what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, that, he like Josh said, I think he's a he's a hollow vessel. I, he's there as a humour. Um, Johnson's, you know, he's literally there as a, a thing to bounce off from Johnson. Johnson's the one with the humour, the gags, and the, the one-liners. And Garcia's there just to move you really through the environment. Uh, I, what I will say about him, though, he. He's great. I love the design of him. I love the tattoo. I love the way the, his actual look. Really? Um, yeah, I, I don't know, it's unusual for a game to actually go down that route of heavy tattoos, and you know, it's it's not something that you normally actually see. So I quite like that. And even Johnson as you know, as his multiple forms is mm. a pretty unique uh, tale. But I, I don't know. I, I I didn't get attached to him enough to really care about what he was doing within the game. Okay. Um, well, that seems like a sensible point to segue on to the overall visual look of the game, um, both on a technical and artistic level. Uh, I think the game looks pretty cool. It's, uh, I think it's a, it's a relatively uh, low-budget title with a, with a fairly restricted development cycle. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things being reused and, uh, you know, there's only a certain amount of monsters. But I think 
I think it has a lot of character. I think it's quite unique looking. I, I really love the art style. Um, I know I've sounded pretty negative about this game up until now, but um, I think the presentation in general is great. Um, mm. One of my particular favourites was the sushi lamp that you have to shoot. Oh, to, that uh, is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that was great. And um, Christopher's kind of wacky. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it all looks really unique and weird and interesting. Uh, what, what's the... Oh, I've forgotten his name. Who's the big bad? Who's the big... Fleming. Fleming. That's his name. Yeah, he looks really, really creepy. Three eyes, it, it, uh, three pairs of eyes stacked on top of one another. That yeah. Really, really bizarre looking, yeah. A bit like the, um, the Chimera in Resistance, but much creepier. It's just, it's an interesting twist on what we're already familiar with. We've all got our own ideas of what hell would look like, and Suda51 and his team have kind of just, okay, let's take hell and just make it completely mental. Let's add all these crazy ideas, and it, and it looks really cool. Sean, what about you? Yeah, I was uh, reading interviews with Suda uh, before the show, and he um, was talking about his version of hell and what he wanted it to be was basically hell in your own backyard mm-hmm. rather than hell underground or, you know, any other kind of version of hell that you've seen before. So that's why, like, a lot of the levels just look like streets and towns, but just with uh, giant chunks of gore on the wall <laughs> or, you know, yeah. uh, things on fire and stuff. You know? So it's really, really neat look, the visual style of it to me, especially. I thought it was really cool to look at. I do, and I think, you know, the lighting's cool and everything, you know, without being clever or flashy, everything's very clear, you know, you, you're very, very rarely at any doubt as to what's kind of going on on screen, there's no confusion, everything's very vivid, and um, it, it serves the actual, the gunplay well, which obviously we'll come on to, um, but uh, yeah, I think for, by and large it's, it's a pretty cool looking game. Tony? I'm not overly sure, um... I, like Sean said, you know, there's there's lots of streets, there's lots of stuff that seems familiar. Um, I don't think it does anything overly interesting with its colour palette. It seems all to be very uh, samey, and there's a lot of light and dark tactics that you get within the gunplay. Um, but there is there is standout moments. Um, you've got like the, the neon lights um, in in that you know, the scene we're talking about, and walking over the naked women and the big boner, mm. um, which really stand out. There's actually a scene closer to the end, the flower garden. Um, mm. Suddenly it all looks different, yeah. Yeah, it really pops out. Uh, and I, but I don't think the game really gets going until the, the later half. It, it, it does seem a bit samey um, throughout the... For me, anyway, it felt quite samey throughout the, the experience up until maybe the last third of the game. where it, you know, I think the, the visual style picks up a, a notch as you start going through the t- tower section and stuff. Well, it's not a, certainly not an ugly-looking game, and I think the character designs themselves are really, really good. That to me is is more of the standout stuff. Is you know the what you know, like I say the four, well, I think it's actually four tiered eyes. Or something that or it, maybe it is three, but it seems four the way because they kind of cross lace <laughs> each other. It's so strange. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the monster design is really really good. But yeah, but no, I, I found the, the, the actual design of the world somewhat. Uh, I don't know, just generic for what I was suspecting it to be. Okay. So another uh, big name of the super group of developers on the credits list, right up for, front and center at the start, is uh, Akira Yamaoka. Uh, famous sound man going all the way back with Konami into the 90s and famously for his sort of frightening atonal uh, industrial noise scores of the Silent Hill games. So here he really gets to uh, 
show a breadth of work from starting with Spanish guitar and he gets to do rock and he gets to do yeah, scary gothic and industrial and uh, I think the I think the soundtrack's pretty awesome actually. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I agree with you, Sean. It, it is the best part of the game. Um, out of the three people who are the big names involved in uh, this project, Akira, I think, is showing off. You know exactly why he's uh, considered such a great composer. He's he's putting in the most hard work in this game, and he's showing off a variety of different kinds of music. Um, it's and it's all equally great um one of my particular favorites was the um rock music that plays when you first get on the uh um motorcycle mm. and it, and it and then suddenly the um you know the start menu comes up and you're like yeah. okay now the game begins it was a really great intro and the soundtrack really aided that sean what were you saying oh no i was just i totally agree he's the best part of the entire game he um like the the use of harmonica, I think for the first third of the game was really just really creepy to me. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know yeah, I was actually yeah, going to say we haven't actually said I found this game, although it is funny and action packed, it is also quite horrific and creepy at points. And I think you know the sound does have a, a huge amount to do with that, as ever. Um, particularly the uh, the the really loud, um, oppressive backing track when demons are in the area um, and, and when it's dark you've got that kind of horn, that atonal discordant horn thing mm-hmm. going and you've got a general sort of hellish wailing, a banshee scream uh, it, it's really effective, if you turn the sound off it would diminish the game hugely yeah, to me, the sound is everything in this game. Um, wow. You know, if I've not been you know necessarily blown away by the visuals and, and we get on to the gameplay, but um, the sound was really, really effective. It made some pretty pedestrian combat scenes seem that much more uh, threatening. Um, for instance, actually, there was a couple of times where you know, bless her, Liz walked into the room, and you know, she found, she found the sound quite overwhelming and had yeah. to leave again. It wasn't yeah. what she saw on the screen. It was just you know, it's intense, use. isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, and some great pieces of music, like say the, the mixture of rock and harmonica, and, and just everything comes together so perfectly. Definitely the, the standout uh, thing of this game entirely. What about the actual uh, sound effects? I think it's an underrated thing that a lot of people don't talk about, but um, I think with a game like this, it's quite important to have, you know, particularly. I think the the guns are are well sold. They they report well back to you, and the squelches and splats are, are satisfying, and they communicate. Everything communicates what's going on, so enemies have uh, audio cues and things to let you know when they're about to pounce, especially if things are, are off screen, things like that. Um, and again, I think it, you know, it doesn't jar against the excellent soundtrack. It doesn't, doesn't take away from Yamaoka's musical work. Um, the sound, is, the sound uh, augments it, you know, complements it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no, you summed it up. I don't know what we can add to that. No, that's it's, cool. That's fine. It's yeah. true. Um, and yeah, we've already brushed upon the voice work, uh, which I think is uh, already credited them, but Johnson, Greg Ellis, and Christopher Cam Clark, um, so, some of the most memorable parts of this game. You know, th- this is these are the things that I will probably take away. Uh, you know, even once the the combat, you know. 
and and the, the puzzles and whatever and the level design is gone i think i'll remember the the time i spent with those characters in particular they are they are actually remember i mean i i know a lot of people saying when this game was first out a lot of people on twitter for example was going up garcia my fucking hotspur <laughs> And yeah, you know, there there is an infectious quality to to a lot of that dialogue, and you know the Johnson quotes are endlessly quotable. Um, so yeah, I think they you know they do a grand job at, at sometimes you know pushing the game further than probably what you know what they actually deserves. But uh, you know, I, I certainly enjoyed those. Yeah, Anyone else? Just, everybody, everybody just chewed it up, like handed up as much as they could. Even yeah. even down to Paula herself at the end. You know, most of the time she's just screaming. Like yeah. helpless cries, but at the end when she gets when she gets possessed, you know, at the end she gets screaming like just guttural at, at uh, Garcia. She really sold it. Yeah, I'm... it's telling actually. Uh, her name uh, Julianne Boesha. Uh, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, she also voiced some of the demons, um, so she's obviously you know a woman with range. So then, uh, how it plays, again, obviously we've, we've brushed past it slightly, uh, there's a lot of shooting, a lot of shooting, um, you spend your time cycling between three guns which get upgraded throughout the game, uh, both in terms of their power, and uh, there's three categories of power, reload and uh, capacity, but there's also uh, a system of blue gems which you tend to get after a major boss fight, which you insert into Johnson's boner head and he uh, he effectively becomes even more of a gun. So say you start off with a fairly standard shotgun. I can't remember all the names of the guns, but um, that becomes uh, something that does a wider spread of damage. And later on, it fires bowling balls uh, sized skulls, uh, which become essential for puzzle solving and, and later boss killing, all that kind of thing. Um, I got to say, like, Maybe it's because I played Deadly Premonition this year, which has really, really creaky mechanics, but I really enjoyed the gunplay. I thought, you know, the character's responsive enough. Um, his evade role is effective and works. There are a few times where I got caught on the scenery that's behind me and stuff like that. Um, but overall, I the, the points where I relished playing this game were the points when I was just thrown into an arena with a set of enemy types and told to manage them with the guns that I had uh, and and overall the feeling of, of popping them um, you know because between your you've also got a melee attack with Johnson where you get to swish at them you can brutally kill them with the X button if you stun them which is another weapon you've got which is uh, augmented onto every gun which is the light shot and there's actually quite a lot going on I think yeah, definitely. I, one one thing that I thought he added in the gameplay a lot uh, was um, that you hit the circle. I don't know what guys you guys were playing on 360. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you, I guess for you guys it would hit the B button whenever someone was behind you. I thought that was a really nice touch because you play games like Alan Wake or Dead Space, and when people get behind you, yeah, it'd become frustrating. You'd be like, oh, where where did that guy come from? You know. And this one, that big B button would pop up right in the center of the screen. And you're like, oh, and you hit it, and he just you know, yeah, and and you've got the 180 flip as well. So there's actually right. two sort of options: uh, a manual and a prompted one to to get on whatever's behind you. And and they do. Some of the the demons are pretty fast moving. A lot of them. I really like that um, it sticks to just free weapon types and just upgrades mm. them because it means the combat doesn't get too fussy. 
you're not like um, in Resident Evil 4, for example, where you're constantly having to go back into the menu to pick a different gun. You can just easily cycle through the three, and you know exactly which scenario each gun is useful for. So that was really nice, simple, clean game design. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the one that keeps sniping him and being the, you know, I don't know. <laughs> the le- say what you feel, Tony. The infused- what, what, what's what we're doing? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think from from Suda in particular, people expect something very unique. Um, it's why you come to his games. By by basically, I don't know, um, pandering to the West. I mean, I don't know whether he pandered to the West. EA picked it up, but I, I there was he was working on this game for a very long time before then. I think what he was trying to do was make a you know a third person action shooter, and everybody can really understand how they work. Uh, you could argue that Killer Seven and No More Heroes had a lot of quirks to them uh, that drove away uh, you know a, a more w- a wider audience. So I, I think he decided to go simple. Uh, maybe that was false one way or the other. What he has achieved, I think, is a very solid gameplay. Uh, as you say, Josh, I mean, the free weapons was a great idea. Um, it's something I've always been a, a fan of, just having a simple weapon set and swapping between them. Um, and I love the upgrading path. I think they work mm. really well, and you do actually feel like the guns have a lot more meteor power to them once you've gone down that route. Although, did anyone ever upgrade reloading speed? Yes, I, I did in the end. Really? Only, yeah, <laughs> only on the, uh, on, on the, uh, the machine gun, the blue one. Um, and I'll tell you for why. And this is actually an issue, uh, an issue of contention. Uh, Dan Benden of Ready Up and uh, Character Select Network um, was discussing this game earlier, in, in, prompted by us mentioning it that we were doing this show. And he said that there was a real problem, which is that for the final boss, uh, the uh, Paula boss particularly, um, less so Fleming, but, but also, um, you pretty much need to use the lock-on uh, function, which is the the very last mandatory upgrade of the uh, the machine gun. If you've not powered up that gun, although those bosses are still doable, it's going to be about ten times harder. You know, yeah. um, the dentist. It's called at that point. The dentist. That's right. Yeah, because you fire teeth. Um, and so, because I was forewarned with that information, I made sure that this afternoon, as I was going through the last stage of the game, I'd already maxed out my health bar. I did nothing to the light shot whatsoever. That was totally unnecessary. Uh, I did nothing to the to the Johnson melee torch because that's totally unnecessary. I spent all my jewels on uh, the guns. Damage. Yeah. Damage, 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 damage. Yeah, health, health and damage, always health and damage. And then once I knew about those final bosses, I thought, right, I'm going to make sure that the, the final bosses are as easy as possible. Um, and as it was, I died on both sections a couple of times, I think. So... Mm. Um, well, the the Fleming one, I died because there's an instant fail state, which is where he reveals Paula to you from his chest. And instead of her, yeah. if she'd had she's a health up. bar, I think that would have been a lot fairer. Um, but the fact that even one bullet getting through is uh, is game over is a bit shit because that boss fight can go on quite a long time. Well, I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> so. Maybe I was expecting something a bit more unique, a bit more grand. Um, I mean, there's there's Third-person shooters, 10 to a dozen, you know, they're everywhere. In many respects, this game reminded me of one of the most generic ones I've ever played, which was uh, Dark Sector, way back in, you know, a few years ago. Mm. Uh, which, so, I, mean, I think the combat works perfectly fine. Um, but, like I say, saying that, I, I think there was something missing from it. It didn't, it didn't feel like a pseudo game. It felt like just a good shooter game with pseudo humour. But he was missing what he wanted to put in the game, uh, the gameplay side of stuff. And maybe that is just to make it 
more simpler, more accessible to everyone. Mm. But it, it loses a little bit of it, its charm along the way. Um, what I will say is the gameplay, for me, picked up massively in the last last third of the game. I think um, the, fir- the first two thirds are almost like a tutorial for six, <laughs> five or six hours. Um, the enemies are pretty slow, and it's not until you get to the, the final enemy type, like you say, when you, you start at the bottom of that tower, and they start throwing stuff at you, ten to a dozen, and you have to actually deal with the, the different forms and waves, that to me, it come alive actually as a shooter. But before that point, I, I thought it was pretty just generic, run-of-the-mill shoot stuff um, with interesting weapons, but nothing more than that. That's weird, because I, I feel the complete opposite. Really? I, I know. I, yeah, I, you said about the tower to me. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the first um, two-thirds before you go into the tower, and then I felt like it, it almost felt like they were, had run out of money by the time you got to the tower. Because <laughs> mm. for me, it felt like it was just like, oh, let's just throw stuff at him as much as possible. But at and that stage, it felt like Bayonetta to me. It, it felt like you, know, you were given something to manage, and there was enemies around you, rather than just... Yeah, shoot and gun and move on. It's a fairly I'm, traditional video game thing to do, particularly a classic. You know, this is a guy who's uh, been working, uh, you know, in, in Japanese video game design for some time, and and to have that last stage where it throws all the enemies of of the game up to that point at you in various combinations is it's it's almost traditional. Some would say mandatory. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you're wrong, Josh. I just. To me, I, I you know, it, it's hard to not look at a game and, well, I, I know a lot of people get annoyed, like, enjoy the game for what it is rather than looking at what it could be. But when you look at the talent involved, you know, with Suda himself, Killer7 and No More Heroes are, are completely batshit crazy and unique, and they were being remembered for that. Um, if you look at the other talent, so, you know, the, who is it's the resident, I don't want to call him Shinji. Shinji, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he's responsible for some of the most greatest and interesting games of, you know, pretty much of gaming of, of end. I mean, you've got Beautiful Joe he, he worked on, obviously the Resident Evil series as a whole. Um, he had heavy involvement in God Hand and Vanquish. All these titles are, you know, varied, interesting. And to me, it's, it's almost like someone like Platinum Games have come along and basically taken his mantle away from him. They produce something that is batshit crazy in Bayonetta, but then had the varied combat and interesting combat and deep combat to kind of balance the humour along with the actual gameplay. I and, completely agree with you, by the and, way. Yeah, well, and it, for, what, for better or worse, Shadows of the Dam just feels like, not necessarily cashing, because I think he had a, a lot of involvement and obviously it's something he wanted to make for a very long time. But it, it, it seems like a step back. It almost seems like the regression for Suda himself just to placate, you know, I don't want to bring EA into this every time, but placate a Western audience. It's a fun game. It is. Um, like I said, I enjoyed it towards the end, but there's just something missing for it to be a classic to go up there with the quality of talent that has worked on this. And maybe I, you know, I overanalyzed it as I was playing it, but you know, the last, the last third to me started to head towards that direction, but it, it doesn't hit the height anywhere close to where those other titles are. Sean, how much did you enjoy the uh, what you, you know, the gunplay that you spend most of the time doing, the general running about and shenanigans? I um, I, I thought it was pretty good. It felt the shooting felt a little loose, like, mm-hmm. like aiming just kind of felt a little. Um, Bit, you know? Yeah, it's a bit twitchy as well, isn't it? Yeah. At points, yeah. But I, I know I was um again I was reading the Suda Fifty One interviews and he said before that he that he very was actively trying to make it cater to a Western audience. I mean, mm. they released it 
first you know months before they were released in Japan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mo- most of the gags are, are clearly not aimed at, mm-hmm. at an Eastern audience. Yeah, and, and I even think the colonel that he meets, the other demon hunter, I think that's straight up a send up of Western uh, yeah. protagonists. You know, I mean, the the wife that you know he he's there because that one demon killed his wife, and her name is Maria Domchevsky. Maria Dom, like it just said, it, that had to have been the send up of gears. Oh yeah, of course, yeah, good spot. Yeah, I mean, there's various um, pop culture references throughout. There's The Evil Dead, which is obviously a good touch point because it it mashes horror and comedy together. There's an Aliens quote. Um, the the map screen is is a is a nod, as are a couple of the level names to Ghouls and Ghosts and Ghosts and Goblins. Um, there's probably a whole bunch of stuff in there. I missed. It? Oh yeah, Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's probably more than 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 you could probably count in one playthrough. Um, mentioning that uh, the 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 Demon World Village levels, uh, there's yeah we we mentioned the big boner levels. Now I think I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone was going to argue that they were the best part of the game. Um, they were kind of annoying. I think I think they were interesting if they were just if they had just the one just mm-hmm. the one level where it was that, I'd be fine with it. But the fact that they make you do it three times mm. and it gets progressively more irritating each time you do it, it just... Uh, and it's not the only sequence that's guilty of this. It, I think there are several points in the game where they take an interesting idea and then overdo it. Like the 2D side-scrolling bit as well. Well, that, I was going to mention those next. Now, the, there are three of those, but you do actually progress, and unlike the big boner uh, first-person alley shooting game, um, there's no instant fail state, so you can at least negotiate your way through checkpoints. the levels. Yeah. yeah, there's checkpoints, and there's some, uh, there's some strategy to it as well. There's some actual skill to that game, and I think it looks and sounds fantastic. So although it's a very slow-paced shooter, I mean, I'm a big 2D game fan anyway, but I think that got away with being three sections long by by being sort of having enough interesting about it. Josh, having not played El Shaddai, how similar is some of the ideas linked between those two games? Um, well, from the out, I mean, it seems from from something from an outsider's point of view, it, it has like a El Shaddai has a great set of ideas that they don't necessarily really you know there's no cohesion between them. So like the two D levels and uh, even like big boner levels is completely separate from the main game. Um, El Shaddai's issue isn't um, so much that the game, because the thing with Big Boner and stuff like that was I genuinely found it to be a horrible experience after three sections. The thing with El Shaddai was it had some great ideas, but it had great ideas that fit into like a two-hour game and not a ten-hour game. Um, and I, I don't know if there's really much these two have in common, to be honest. I think they're... Um, their aims are totally different. Well, with the big boner level, I, I think the, they play it for the joke, and, and the joke at the very start about Johnson turning into a big boner, that in itself, I mean, you can chuckle to that. I, I think the first time I saw it, I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, that's kind of funny. And then you, the, the gameplay itself, it, it's rudimentary, it works, there's an, almost an instant fail state if they get anywhere close. Um, but like I said, it's the repeating of the joke over and over and over again. It, yeah. I mean, um, Liz was sitting upstairs and she's saying, Jesus Christ, all I've heard for the last pretty much hour <laughs> is, is, Jesus, my big boner, <laughs> every 20 seconds. And she's yeah. going, what are I you think, doing? Um, 
What were your What were your respective game times? I played it on normal, and my completion time was eight minutes thirty eight. And I guess eight minutes prob- eight eight minutes thirty eight <laughs> seconds. Wow. Yeah, fucking eat my dust. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, eight hours and thirty eight minutes. Um, and I I suppose you could probably uh, say that maybe at twenty minutes to half an hour of that would have been uh, tasting big boners or thereabouts. And certainly, if you add up the big boner and the side-scrolling uh, twin-stick shooter, you're probably looking at the best part of an hour of padding there, arguably. I, yeah, I think I clocked around eight to nine hours, something around then. Did anyone play it on hard, masochistically? I really wouldn't advise it. I played <laughs> okay. it for a little bit and then... Yeah, yeah. No. there's um, no new game plus sadly, and the achievements don't stack, so you complete it on normal and don't that, get the achievement or the trophy for easy, which is a terrible. Yeah, the, the completionist in me is is wanting to go back for it, but honestly, I didn't find it that grand of an experience. So the idea of playing this maybe for another fourteen to sixteen hours to to re- replay on both those levels doesn't overly appeal for me. I, I might mess around. I mean, I, I went out my way to find a lot of the gems first time round. Mm. Um, I for whatever half reason they were, I, they were st- I was still missing half but then uh, well actually I don't know how many I missed because you, obviously you can buy you could spend every single jewel you get on gems and yes. uh, do it that way so I don't uh, is there a way of knowing how many you've missed even? No, all, all I know is that there's an achievement linked to it so you know 75 gamer score yeah, um, yeah so that may be something I play around with but I, I was really disappointed when I found out that you couldn't new game plus. I, I, I'd understand the guns that that would make sense because the start of that game would be incredibly simple with uh, some of the later weapons. But I'm surprised you can't carry on the gems over. I mean, even just overpower with the damage on that stuff to kind of build towards it because that's what it felt like they were trying to to get you to do, um, which is, is a shame and something I probably would appreciate and something I probably would enjoy to go through hard with completely overpowered guns, but. Especially seeing as Dead Space 2 came out earlier that year, this year, mm. and it did New Game Plus excellently. Loads have, yeah. So, yeah. Missed opportunity. Fair enough. Um, for me to summarise first, uh, I actually, I, I really enjoyed the game, and I think it's one of those that is very much more than the sum of its parts. If you if you look at the individual bits, you look at the padding, the gunplay not being extra sophisticated, the ridiculous humour, the slightly disgraceful portrayal of women and all that um it would be very easy to uh you know turn my nose up at it and and all that but actually i have really fond memories of it this game's got way more charm and charisma than something like gears of war for me the enemy design is more interesting the setting is more interesting um even if the gameplay is just not anywhere near as sophisticated or clever um i'm particularly being kind to it given that i also came across a few bugs which uh, there was one where i went through a gate that i wasn't supposed to open yet and then the <laughs> clipping the clipping all disappeared and i spent time wandering around a level where i could go wherever i wanted and eventually fell through the scenery into the floor there was a point later on after completing a, a, comp- a difficult the the arena at the front of the tower um the cutscene didn't trigger so uh, and that happened twice so I had to actually reload the start of the chapter rather than the checkpoint to actually get past that. So I played that section three times. And yet I still, although, you know, this was a rental, it's going back tomorrow. Um, I probably wouldn't play it through again, but I have fond feelings about it overall. Josh? Um, it's a game where bits of it I love, bits of it I like, and bits of it I hate. It's it's a real mixed bag. but um. 
I in, I enjoyed playing it for the bits I loved. I mean, the soundtrack is fantastic, and I think you need to experience it within the context of the game uh, to really get a sense of what it's accomplishing. Mm. Um, the art design is fantastic um, and crazy and mental, and you're not going to see character designs like that in any other game. Um, the gunplay is satisfying, if not the highlight of the experience for me. But, yeah, the story's really, really dumb. And apart from Johnson, uh, who I really like, um, every character kind of just pissed me off. <laughs> Sean, what about you? Did you enjoy? Yeah, I had a great time with it. It was just it was just a fun ride, you know, fun horror, kind of like Planet Terror-ish kind of ride. You know, it didn't have to be... Not every game needs to be like Skyrim, you know, this big, deep, you know, experience. You know, it was just a nice... 10-hour shoot 'em up which I, I, I had a lot of fun with. And again, soundtrack of the year, for sure. Wow. Uh, Tony, I, any, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm only re- to reiterate what I was saying here. I, I think there's a better game um, in Suda's repertoire, and I think there's a better game that is mixed with Western ideals. Um, I, I was talking to somebody earlier, actually, how um, there, there was a great director I loved at some point um, called David Gordon Green. He directed a film called George Washington, which is absolutely brilliant and one of my all-time favourites. Went on to do all the real girls, but he'd become a, like a Hollywood cash-in. And um, he he later then done Pineapple Express and Your Highness, uh, two very Hollywoody films. And I think it's a great talent that's been lost to the wind. Mm. And I mean, I, I think this to me is a mixed bag of um, EA wanting something you know, to dig into the um, to the Eastern market with a you know to bring to the West and. I think they did get a mixed bag. Um, there's mixed point game. There's mixed gameplay. There's uh, mixed storytelling. I think if you're going to take anything away from this, if you want to play it, it's got you know Garcia Hotspur will be a memorable character, um, and Johnson will you know I think will be fondly remembered as as one of the best kind of jokey psychics around. Um, but for me, I I just I can't help but think that there's there's better games. There's games that, that try to do the same thing and really if you haven't played Bayonetta it has a lot of the, the same cheeky over the top humour but a lot deeper more interesting gameplay than, than what Shadows of the Dan can do but you could waste 10 hours uh, a lot worse than, than to dig into this but for me it would probably be something I would, wouldn't be overly eager to tell people they need to check out but if you've never played a Suda game this is the most accessible. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave you to decide. For me, it probably slightly fell on the bad side of things because I kind of like it a bit more wacky. Kind of like my David Lynch to be, I don't need to know the end of my Holland Drive rather than <laughs> let me know everything that's going on. So, yeah. Demon keeps dreaming of a demon town. Motherfucker, bitch, fuck, ship went down. Fleming's got an itch, scratch it with a bitch. Demon keeps dreaming of a demon town. Ooh, Johnson, that's my name. Big penis, that's my game. Johnson, yeah, Johnson, ooh, Johnson, everywhere, yeah. Motherfucker, bitch, fuck, ship went down. Ha ha, in the darkness, we shall have fun. Talk about my Johnson, talk about my bum. Talk about my thighs, they're really good in size. Oh my goodness, I can't believe my eyes, cause Fleming's got an itch. Scratch it with a bitch. Demon keeps dreaming of a demon town. Motherfucker bitch cock cunt went down with a demon demon town. <laughs> 
All right. Um, and with that, uh, we'll lead you into part two, which is, as I mentioned earlier, a completely different sort of thing. And uh, I spoke yesterday to Nick Watt of No, and here is, uh, here is that interview. And here I am with uh, Nick Watt, founder and creative director at No. <laughs> Welcome to Cane and Rinse. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. So, uh, how do you pronounce the name of your company on a day-to-day basis? Uh, generally, just no. But um, when we're when we're describing it to people like you just did, then uh, yeah, we go for the cartoon. Bill, Bill, play that up as much as possible. <laughs> very good. What was the inspiration um, other than the obvious? Uh, well, uh, because my um, accent's obviously a little bit Scottish. Um, mm. When I used to work in Leamington Spa in England. Um, for a video games company, we used to play a lot of um, Mario Kart and Mario Tennis and all sorts of other for, um, versus games during lunch times. And uh, whenever I was getting beaten or when something amazing happened, I would always be going no, uh, and they found <laughs> that they find that rather hilarious and used to mock me. So that became my gamer tag, and then it kind of just stuck and thought it might be quite a cool name for a games company. Oh, I see. Okay, so uh, yeah, we've, we've all said it, but it's um, it's very polite, you know. Uh, a lot of the things that many of us shout when being beaten at Mario Kart are not things you could actually register as a company name. Yeah, well, there might have been other expletives that came after that word. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you mentioned um, working in Leamington Spa. Um, mm. how, how did you come to end up uh, forming your own company in Australia there? What, what's your path through the games industry up to this point? Okay, so I basically uh, studied architecture at university and graduated in 1998. Um, and I knew that I wanted to get into video games. I've always been a really big fan of, of video games and kind of started playing on Game & Watches when I was quite young. And my dad mm. used to travel a lot on business, so he, he'd have to go to Japan and stuff and we'd bring them back occasionally. Um, and we'd also, I love playing the arcade machines whenever we went to drop them off at the airport, probably more than actually saying hello or goodbye when he went on his journeys. Yes. Um, yeah, so it was always something that I, I was interested in, but just you don't really realize or at the time didn't really think of it as a career and it kind of seemed this weird strange thing mystical thing that you know they just kind of happened rather than yeah. it being a job um and it wasn't until university that i started to you know really realize that obviously it was becoming more of a profession and, and in particular the playstation one and the n64 were coming out at that time and mm-hmm. i think it was the turning point for me realizing that my skills in architecture and design and previous experience you know through life at that point um, might be applicable was when I was starting to see games like Tomb Raider and and even Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. When you know they're in three right. D, they're designing these spaces. They're obviously having to design worlds and and buildings and levels and stuff. And I was like, oh, maybe my skills might be applicable for this. So I, t- I basically tailored my portfolio, got my first job in Leamington Spa, um, working for a, a small and um, then I think four or five man um, company. Um, and that was great because I got a lot of hands-on experience. So I was doing a lot of design work. I was doing a lot of artwork, animation, modeling, doing texturing, um, working really closely with the programmers and the team because um, it was very hands-on. So that, that was a great experience. Are you allowed to name them? Um, yeah, so they're, called, they're still around. They're called Supersonic Software. They've done a lot of oh, yeah. um, uh, great games. They particularly um, focus on games like they did the – I think it was Micro Machines 2 was one of their first – 
um, games on the Mega Drive and then right. uh, for Codemasters. And then um, yeah. that's kind of been their speciality really ever since. So they've done a couple of other circuit breakers and mashed and, and these sorts of things. Ah, uh, yes. Now we have, uh, as a member of our community is a huge fan of uh, of, of those games. And is look, there's a there's an Xbox Live Arcade uh, iteration coming. Yeah, uh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very much looking forward to that. That's, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, so they're they're a really, they're a really good team. They're a really good bunch of guys um, and maybe girls now actually. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so from there, I kind of my partner was living in London, and we were kind of only seeing each other weekend stuff. So it was starting to get a bit hard. So I, I tried to um, move on from from Supersonic, not because I didn't enjoy working there, but just mainly because I wanted to try and um, move to London. Um, Geography wise, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I worked at a couple of other game studios, one in London, and then actually ended up working back up in Scotland um, for a while as as lead designer for uh, a company called Visual Science, who who no longer exists now. And then mm. the last job I had before setting up No was as a lead designer at Electronic Arts back in London, um, and that was when they were still based in Chertsey. They they recently moved uh, about two, maybe no, it must be longer than that. It must be about four or five years ago they they moved to yeah. to Guildford. Um, yeah. So what games can uh, did you work on at EA? So my period at EA, um, I think it was um, just under a year I worked there because at the t- um, while I was working there, my partner got offered the opportunity to move out to Australia. So um, mm. I was working on um, an RPG that originally started life um, on the PSP but then moved to the, to the DS. And at the time I was working, it was called Podo, but I think it, I think it was released under the title Zubo Blip. Um, and it was meant to be... Um, a kind of Pokemon competitor, like EA's, uh-huh, EA's yeah. version of Pokemon, um, and it you know it was a really promising title when I w- while I was there. Unfortunately, it was one of those ones that started to start to languish in development hell, and um, mm. they spent a lot more money than I think EA liked, so that kind of sort of drifted away and, and never really did anything. Unfortunately, it was really nice. I mean, the character design and and everything they were trying to do was really good, but it's just one of those titles that it kind of went over its budget and then. The company, original sort of. IP, such a difficult proposition these yeah, days. Yeah, it's really hard, I think. Um, yeah, so I mean, I was quite lucky. It was a really great experience. I made m- made a lot of really, really good um, friends there and um, some really good contacts. And then when we got the opportunity to move out to Australia, we obviously jumped at the chance. And um, I basically, my, my partner was lucky enough to be um, being funded quite well by the, the bank and that he worked for. So that meant that, that I could kind of use my savings to set up no and take a little bit mm. of risk. And this was just around about the time when the Xbox had come out and Xbox Live was obviously, Xbox Live Arcade was starting to do quite well. Um, but yeah. the, the Wii had only just launched and didn't have a digital platform for mm. independent games. And I think PlayStation 3 had just launched and again, it hadn't, you know, the PlayStation Network kind of wasn't fully formed at that point. So we started speaking, or I started speaking to um, Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony through my contacts, and after about nine months to a year of of kind of really difficult conversations and not hearing very mm. much and going backwards and forwards, um, Nintendo asked me to pitch them ten ideas, uh, and mm. then from those ten ideas, they then said, "Well, look, take these three and detail them up a little bit more." And this was all just on paper, so it was just like mostly text and, and some diagrams and stuff. There was no actual gameplay or or us making anything at that point, and um, they said, "Look." have you signed an NDA yet? And I was like, no, I don't think I have. So they said, all right, we'll send, send you an NDA. So they sent me that and I signed it. And then the next day they went, right, you're part of the WiiWare program. And I was like, oh, okay. Fantastic. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> okay. So um, one of those, presumably you've been with WiiWare right from the beginning. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the earliest titles was Pop. Yeah. I assume that was one of your uh, pitches, as it were. 
Um, well, actually, funny enough, it wasn't one of the ones that we originally pitched. It wasn't. No. Okay. <laughs> um, so we pitched a whole bunch of ideas. And then it, what was happening at the time internally, we were, we were building some prototypes. Um, and we originally wanted to try and get Xbox Live Arcade um, developer approval. But it was just proving really, really difficult, mainly mm. because Microsoft um, want you to build a game demo um, that's really, really polished and have lots of artwork and finished design documents before they even talk yeah. to you. And they can turn around and say no. So we were like, well, th- this is just silly because we might spend nine months making a prototype and then if Microsoft say no, then we've basically, I've got no money left. Um, so because we were doing that prototype at the time, I'd learned a lot doing it and realized what our strengths and weaknesses were. And the ideas that we pitched, I was beginning to realize that were maybe a little bit more ambitious than what we could achieve. So I wanted mm. to focus on something that I knew we could achieve with and, and get out in, in, in launch time. Um, and we could also make sure that it was really fun and really, really well polished. So that's why we ended up going for pop in the end. A couple of years ago, I spoke to uh, on on my previous podcast to Martin Hollis of mm-hmm. Tsunami, formerly of Rare, um, about uh, Bonsai Barber. Yeah, um, and uh, he said, I think he was certainly suggesting that although uh, Nintendo do have their obviously they have all their things that you have to do to release a game for it to meet all the standards and uh, requirements, mm-hmm. a game on WiiWare. Um, they're perhaps the the overall process is a little less sort of daunting, le- less red tape than XBLA and PSN. Is that uh, fair? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, basically, um, all three platform holders have their technical requirements, if you like, that yeah. you've got to pass in all these tests. Um, but Nintendo are pretty um, open in what you can develop. There, there are things that... Yeah, you there are limits to what you're allowed to develop in terms of um content so you know you couldn't do a rape simulator or something like that because obviously that no it wouldn't fit on the week no no. um well and yeah so but other than that you kind of you've got a fairly big box to 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 play around with and they um they they're very hands-off in terms of of what sort of game you can or can't make so it's really good i mean you basically just they like to know what you're doing so you submit um, a, what's called con, a concept to them, mm. and um, I mean we've not had anything realistically rejected. The only we have had a couple of things that they said no, but that was mainly because we wanted to do um, a voice um, video conferencing application on the DSI, and they just said, "Look, we think it's a great idea, but the the DSI has not been approved by the FCC in America as a communications device for that sort of oh. thing. So you kind of can't right. do it. But other, other than that, you know, other, and other than reasons like that, they're, they're not really going to say no to most mm. of what you do. So it's, it's really good. So you just submit the, the concept and then you get what's called a game code and then you basically just start developing. And then once you're finished, you send it in. And as long as you pass all the tests, uh, it comes out in the store, which is really nice. Whereas with Microsoft and Sony... <clears throat> It's a little bit more difficult. Sony, you've got to get, um, it's called a green light process, and you've got to go through um, in, in different territories as well. So that Europe will, 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 might, may well approve your game for, for each of the green light stages, um, and America may not. So um, that's a bit, t- we haven't actually investigated that fully yet, so I don't know how difficult or hard that is or whether many people actually get failed along that process later mm. on. Uh, and then Microsoft got something similar, but... <clears throat> You've also got to find a publisher as well, which uh, makes it harder. Whereas we can obviously self-publish on on WiiWare, and I'm pretty sure we can self-publish on on PlayStation Network as well. Mm. Okay, uh, yeah, I know one one thing that some people have done uh, on the 360 is sort of go in via stealth, which is to 
a smaller studio such as as yourselves mm. is make a make a game for the indie marketplace and then it if it's good enough it gets kind of promoted into a into a, a, a live arcade release there's been a few that have gone that path um and even some games that i've seen have come out on like ds first like the arcado games they've they've ended up coming out on the indie game service yeah. i don't know if there's any uh, it's obviously it's a weird marketplace because you've also got utter crap on there talentless tawdry rubbish that you perhaps wouldn't want to be associated with but there's also loads and loads of really cool games in there is that ever something you considered yeah we have looked at the, at the indie marketplace and i think you know you're it's a little bit the, like the iphone for us is that there's so much content mm. on there and there's such a breadth of quality on there that i think obviously some titles can stand out there's like a minecraft clone which is sold in absolutely insane numbers absolutely apparently. yeah um so, there's a couple of them in fact yeah. yeah um so that's obviously really great but for us i just think that uh, i mean we're we're no longer hobbyists at, at doing this so the the indie marketplace to us is you know we could spend a lot of time and money making something that's really very well polished and putting onto that and then at, and see no money and we've kind of had been yeah. there done that with the iphone um so okay. for us we, we would like to you know because we consider ourselves to be relatively professional um we'd like to try yeah. and stay in the in the professional marketplaces if, if we can and we have i mean it's been really good we've just recently been approved as um xbox developers actually so that's that's really great oh. um and we we're already approved um as playstation um developers as well um, we're talking to them a lot about PlayStation Vita. So um, we, we've kind mm. of um, got all those possibilities. I think that there's only four of us, so we just have to choose our projects and platforms wisely. So we're still in deciding what platforms we want to go to with um, Escape Vector next. I was actually going to ask you, um, it ties into this, I was going to ask you to describe the game to our listeners who haven't played it. And, and one thing that did strike me was that it, it would seem to be a natural fit for something like the Vita. Mm. Yeah, I think it, I, 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 I think so. Um, I think it would work really well on that. So, um, well, to describe the game, basically mm. you're um, helping this character who's trapped inside your Wii CPU or your Vita CPU, if we get there. Um, and he's called Vector. <laughs> and, and the basic idea is that he's been trapped there for quite a while. He's got no real memories of why he's there, what's happened and um he just knows he's been trapped in this cell and that the cpu obviously doesn't like him very much um so you've got to try and help him escape um and that the main premise of the game and, and the main core gameplay kind of focuses around this sort of um escape kind of dynamic so it controls a little bit or maybe a lot like um pac-man in that um you start moving through what you could describe almost as mazes so there's it's like geomet intersecting geometric um, two-dimensional shapes that are kind of quite stylized mm. vector graphics um, and they the interconnection kind of forms the mazes that you move around and the first one is very very simple it's just a basic square and that's to teach the player the the dynamics of the yeah. game um, yeah so it's so you've got to try and take possession of the level by um, coloring in the whole uh, of the level by bordering each each side of each cell and then when you do that the exit will appear and then you've got to try and escape so that's kind of the simplest part of the game but obviously yep. um, we introduce enemies along the way um, and other mechanics and puzzle elements um, such as we've got electric fences that you can toggle on and off but, mm. the, but the enemy can also toggle on and off as well so you've got to try and tie, sometimes time your 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 journey um, through the level and evade the enemies yeah. and then you've got two um, 
game mechanics, you've got boost, which um, as you move along the levels and eat up um, or claim lines, you uh, fill your boost bar, which allows you to travel faster. And mm-hmm. um, once you, each time you board a, a, a complete cell, you also um, fill up a detonation pip, which allows you to send out a shockwave, which will kill any enemies nearby. And that slowly gets, both of those mechanics slowly get upgraded across the, the, the game as well. Yeah. And allow you can then go back, uh, that upgrade system overarches, so you can go back to your earlier levels and improve your gradings on those levels, which is a great system, I think. Oh, thank you. One of the uh, things that's most striking early on, um, obviously, the, the actually, the first thing I wanted to say was we should, <laughs> we should give, the, give the game its, its entire name. It is actually called Escape Vector Chapter 1, yeah. colon, Combat Power Unleashed. <laughs> Which is yeah, quite, quite a long a game moment. for a for a, a game with a small file size. Yeah. Um, does, does this uh, uh, there, are there going to be more chapters or more vector games or both? Um, yeah. Well, so <clears throat> first of all, the character vector is imagined that he's part of what we are imagining as a franchise. So, escape vector in terms of chapter, uh, we we design four chapters. Um, obviously with chapter one being the first and mm-hmm. um the idea originally was to release all four of them on on WiiWare and obviously we released chapter one now the WiiWare market is kind of not the most amazing market at the moment um so no. so we're kind of just we're waiting to see how sales go over Christmas and, and yeah. Thanksgiving in America before we make decisions on whether we release the the other chapters onto onto Wii or not but what we're definitely mm. planning on doing we're already working on the 3ds version um of Escape Vector and okay. we're thinking that we'll probably and bundle all of those chapters up together as one version of the game if we do that. I was going to ask, could we see in the future a, a BitTrip-style genre-spanning saga <laughs> and perhaps ultimately culminating in a physical release of some kind on a cartridge or a disc? Or, you know, um, that something. would be very cool. I mean, we're definitely open to those sorts of conversations. We Obviously, physical publishing for us is, is not something we can do ourselves because you have to basically no. go to Nintendo and go, here's $2 million, can we buy a load of cartridges from you? Um, <laughs> yeah. So And then find ways to get them in shops. So no, that won't be us, but we, we, if, uh, we'd definitely be interested in it. Um, yeah, so just jumping back to the franchise. So the idea mm. is that um, Escape Vector um, as a whole, whether you think of it as four chapters or whether you think of it as you know the, all of them jammed together, that's kind of what we're classifying as like one part of the franchise. And that actually tells the end of Vector's story, if you like. Um, and then we've got another um, three game ideas um, that have different prefaces. So that it's basically the Vector franchise. And we've got other ideas like Blast Vector and Thrust Vector and Boost Vector. Um, uh, yeah, so um, they're the ideas that were, they're the kind of names that we'd have. So they would be other parts of the franchise and would tell kind of the story of how he gets to the point of being trapped um, in the CPU. Okay, so what's because uh, obviously when you're actually playing this game, it's 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 uh, it's fairly sort of minimalist and abstract. Um, what's the thought behind giving it such a, a thoughtful sort of backing story? So a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we do is based on learnings from the past. So when we did Pop, um, Pop, when you download it, pretty much all of the content is unlocked at the start, and the only things that aren't unlocked are the badges or achievements that you get for for doing various things when playing the game, and. Um, yeah. One of the things that I, I found or, or sort of realized after, like post-release was I think that you probably encourage a little bit more longevity and, and interest in players if there's a feeling that they, that they need to keep playing to kind of 
unlock something or find things or, or do things. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. we experimented with that on the subsequent releases of Pop on the iPhone and the, the DSi, where we, we yeah. locked some of the modes and you could unlock them by doing various things. And we tried to make it so that you didn't have to just do one thing to unlock them. If you, if you played the game one way, things would unlock. But if you played mm-hmm. another way, they would also unlock. Um, so that was the first thing that we... we we, we realize and we kind of want to keep throughout our games. And so obviously Escape Vector um, has a map system and that harks back a lot to the Mario games in that you, you open up subsequent yeah, levels and totally. subsequent worlds yeah. and stuff. Um, and then in terms of narrative, something that I was thinking, well, looking at the audience, particularly kids, is that if there's a bit more, because it is quite an abstract game, if there's a little bit more story tying the whole thing together, would that... Yeah encourage people or to keep playing want to keep playing and, and encourage maybe a different t- type of people to, to to find the game interesting yeah um yeah so back to the sort of the actual design of this game apart mm. from the the obvious references of kicks and amidar and uh, i also feel a bit like uh, light cycles the light cycles game from the, the original tron coin up mm-hmm. um what were there any other sort of gaming inspirations behind it well, it's really funny because I actually hadn't heard of Amadar or Quix when we actually started making it. Really? And, yeah, and it's really uncanny. Um, and there, in terms of actual, <laughs> I assume you've seen it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And in terms of actual direct gameplay references, there wasn't. All I was aiming for was I had this really strong graphical style in mind with the, obviously mm. the better graphics. And in actually fact, Blast Vector, which is one of the games that we'd like to get onto working on at some point in the future in the franchise. Um, was actually the one I really wanted to do, and I've got you know I, I've got some really strong ideas about that in terms of gameplay. But uh, because of my learnings from Pop and the things that we've done, I knew that um, if we went straight into making a really ambitious game at the start, then we might be setting ourselves up to fail. So I was kind of thinking, you know, could we turn like looking at the Bit Trip series? Could we turn this into a franchise? What other things could we do that would use this graphical style and that would kind of you know reflect this? And that's where the whole story of Vector and being trapped in the CPU and how he gets there—that all started to happen in my head at the same okay. time. And then the actual programmer um, that I worked with on the project—it actually turns out he um, has made a game called Painter, which is kind mm. of which is. Um, came out on the Atari, one of the Atari machines. And I didn't, yeah. again, I didn't... It's an Amadar variant. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't yeah. realize this at the time. So we were basically just brainstorming one day and I was talking about Blast Vector to him and saying, oh, we could do this and we could do that. And he was like, yeah, that sounds really cool. And I was kind of, but I'm a bit worried that it might be a bit too complicated. So maybe we should think of something else. So I just started brainstorming and I was like, well, you know, we've got this graphical style and this, we could do this and we could do that and we could do the next thing. And we could border these cells and we could have these maps and we could, and he's like, do you do realize you're describing a game that I've already made? And I'm like, no, you're, no, that can't be possible. Of course you can't. I've just come up with this idea. And he's like, don't, no, 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 I've totally made this game already. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, he sends me um, an Atari emulator and a, and a, and a ROM of um, Painter. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so that was kind of quite yeah. cool in some ways because for him it was a little bit like, it was one of the first jobs that he did in the industry. So it was a little bit like coming back um, mm. to where he started. And then we could obviously take it and apply a lot more modern um, learnings and gameplay elements to it. Because if you go back and play, when I play Painter, the first level is really, really difficult. And yeah, yeah. we actually uh, included a sort of version of that as the last level in World 1 where you get introduced to the Hunters. And that's basically, mm. the, I think that's the first map or it's a take on the first map from Painter. Yeah, learning cliff of puttingly difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. actually, I was in, 
preparation for this interview, I was watching, um, even though I didn't know you weren't aware of the game, I was watching some old footage from an American TV show called Starcade okay. from the 80s, uh, where some uh, guys with really uncool uh, sunglasses and haircuts <laughs> and moustaches were playing um, the original Amadar. And uh, it is, yeah, it's it's absolutely, it's monstrously hard as, as coin ops, particularly back then, were designed to be, you know, to, yeah. to swallow your money just to get that right balance. Whereas um, the, the, I think the difficulty curve in uh, Escape Vector Chapter 1 is excellent, actually. You can't well, quite you. believe that you've, in a, in a very short space of time, gone from literally going round one square, you know. And, and this is a game where the, the actual interface is, is basically the four cardinal D-pad directions. Mm-hmm. Um, the game, I should say, gets slightly easier if you use a classic controller over the Wii remote because the D-pad's that bit bigger and, and more responsive, I think. Um but then a few levels, a few worlds in, um, especially in the the initial, uh, it shows you the stage. The camera kind of zooms in a bit from uh, from uh, a wide shot, as it were, and goes into uh, where your where your vector is. Um, you can't quite believe that you've come that that far in that in that space space of time, and and um, it is that thing of drip feeding uh, new uh, elements, new gameplay elements on each level, I suppose. Yeah, no, definitely. Hmm. Um, um, how long was the was the game actually in development? Because I noticed there was a, there was quite a, a long gap between um, Pop and this in terms of games. I know you were working on sort of apps and and things for the for the DSiWare in the meantime, but that's a long time for a, a, a gap between games. Yeah. So uh, basically, at the end of Pop, I ran out of money. So um, what happened was because we get paid quarterly from Nintendo, so I'd spent all of my savings making Pop. Um, right. and, our, and our prototypes before that. So we had to wait a while to, to start re- recouping the cash. Um, and so the apps, um, my notebook and things, basically what happened was I, we we brought Pop to the iPhone and then we brought um, Pop to the DSi. And I actually worked yeah. with external people to do that, to keep costs down. And then we hired a new person internally because I had to let the, the original staff from Pop go, unfortunately, just because you know, I couldn't promise them money because I didn't know how the game was going to sell and they couldn't wait around. So that was a bit of a shame. But um, Mm. uh, yeah, so we we got um, Stephen in as our our new member of staff and he started, I wanted, my learnings from Pop where we need to to do something simple with people who are just, you know, this is their first game. So that's where the apps kind of came from and the learning was we wanted to build up to do Spirit Hunters Inc. Um, And so every little app that we were going to do was one, going to be a test of the marketplace on DSi and two, um, would teach us something so that Spirit Hunters theoretically would be easier. Um, so that's kind of what we spent a while doing. And then at that time, obviously, money was was coming in from Pop on WiiWare and then subsequently Pop on DSi. Um, mm. And so I started to have enough cash to be able to start thinking about what game we'd want to make next. Um, so I think it was about... Um, Escape Vector was in development for just over a year um, and mm-hmm. part of that's because we, again, we're working with someone external, someone I've actually worked with in Scotland um, at Visual Science, and we got on, we got on really, really well. But it, I mean, it does have working remotely does have its difficulties. Um, obviously, yeah. he was in LA and I was in Sydney, so the time zone can make things quite difficult sometimes. And not being next to each other means that I can't just go, oh, can you just change that? And, and they, and they ha- it, has, it becomes more of a, a conversational process and a, a, you know, trying to convince someone that they want to change something and then explain it. Whereas if you're sitting beside someone, you can doodle on a bit of paper really quickly and you, know, you can work on things together. So that was definitely a learning experience for us. Yeah. 
So yeah, back to um, the design of this game. Um, mm. It's heavy on risk reward. Uh, the actual gameplay, moment to moment experience, is very much about risk reward. And you've got mm. the uh, the overarching upgrade system, as I mentioned. You've also got these uh, badges, which are kind of like achievements or yeah. trophies, but obviously you don't have the the sort of uh, the meta system that you have on on the other consoles. Um, you've also got the medals, which uh, um, and you mentioned before the the very Nintendo esque um, map screens, mm. uh, even down to the point that you can get uh up to four medals in each one but there's also a kind of um sort of secret icons as it were on the map to indicate that you've done things even better so you yeah. can change the color of the icon by having aced every uh, map uh, in a world mm -hmm. and you can even get a star by completing each level with uh without using a single detonate pit yeah which if you've tried some of these uh, well, obviously, you've tried a lot of them. Um, <laughs> I, I would. Uh, uh, did you actually design a lot of these levels yourself? Yeah, I designed all the levels in. in okay, in this I thought actually, so. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure before I called you an evil genius, um, <laughs> because uh, I wondered how long it take. How long it takes? Obviously, level one was probably quicker than and than, than uh, how many. How many worlds are there, by the way? I'm, I'm I think there's world four or five. Yeah, there's five worlds altogether. Okay. Um, there is a sixth one that's a bonus. Um, a oh, bonus yes, world. I've unlocked that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's already a, uh, the 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 one level I've got open on that is is a nightmare. But oh, see, um, that's it, so good to know because um, well, I don't mean that in a bad way, but when I'm because we played them to death so much, and you think I, they're really easy. Yeah, yeah, and in, <laughs> and in particular the bonus ones, I was like, these are really, really easy. These are just so easy. Um, if people unlock these early, is this just going to be, I don't know how they're going to feel, but I'm really glad the difficulty curve worked out as well. Cause again, that's something I worked, I spent a lot of time on because, um, I knew that I didn't want a tutorial. Like I really, really detest long window tutorials in games. Mm. Um, and in particular, the reason I detest them is because they spend a long time, um, it kind of feels, I don't know, like an obstacle course slash checklist a lot of the time. So it's like, do this yeah. and then you do it once and you're, and as a player, because you just come into this new world with this new control scheme and there's, you know, 20 things that you're going to have to learn when they ask you to do something and, and you just have to press the A button and you do it, then it's not like you really understand that at that point. You're just kind of like, <laughs> yeah. all right, I've just pressed the A button. And then they then, then go now, now press the A and the B button. And you're like, okay. And then now press the A and the B and the X and the trigger. And you're like, oh, okay. And, and they're just hitting you with stuff so quickly that by the time you get out and you finish the tutorial, you're like, I can remember what three of the buttons do, but not really what anything else does. Um, yeah. So I knew we really didn't want that. And that's why um, I spent a long time and it, and it was a really, really tough decision as well. Like the first level is a square and you can't, there's no enemies, you can't fail in the first level. And I'm thinking no. if people might just download this and get to this level and think this game is really <laughs> bad, this, what, like, like, just look at it and go, oh my god! So that was a really that was really tough. Um, but mm. the more we saw people playing it, once they get past the first couple of levels, it kind of starts to click, and you know, it it, it does seem to feel like it's got this relatively nice um, difficulty curve. So, uh, and the fact that that's what a lot of the reviewers said, and obviously yourself as well, that that mean that means a lot to me because <laughs> it was really yeah, tough. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, absolutely. Um, and I, and I play a lot of games, and and a lot of games that, that don't get that right, but um, it really does have the one more go uh, quality, and it's also normally 
uh, if I'm shouting the name of the developer while playing a game, it's not kind. But in this case, <laughs> I'm just going, no, because I've just died with like two inches of white left to cover on a level. And, uh, and I think, ah, I see why they've, why they've called themselves that. Um, so, yeah, how long would it take to design one of the more complex later levels? That was my original question. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, I had to go off on tangent, so sorry. No, so do I. It's, uh, <laughs> it's absolutely welcome. Um, so, in, uh, well, it's difficult. Because what I did was I tried to, I would design the shape of each level, and and so I'd have quite a lot of the game blocked out just for aesthetics, and and try and create interesting routes, and then I would spend a long time putting little bits and pieces on a level, playing it, and seeing how it worked. Um, so some levels, obviously, the first level was not very long at all. Um, Whereas the later levels, I'd say, you know, maybe if, if you've taken all the polish and the adjustments, maybe a couple of days if you were just focusing on that one level. But because I've got a really short um, boredom threshold, I kind of can't just work on one level at a time. Uh, and, yeah. and sometimes I'll get stuck in and it, and it will be like a whole day and I'll just be on that one level. But often I'll need to kind of do a couple of bits and pieces and get it working and then move on to um, another level and kind of come back to it and play it again because I find that what happens is you'll you'll get to a certain point and if you just say that's done um, and never look at it again then you're often leaving stuff um, with mistakes in it or you know it needs a little bit more polish so if you move on and then come back to it and play it again then you and be quite self-critical of your own work um, can often help so yeah. a lot of the levels went through a lot of iteration because I, I would often play them and just go I just don't like that and like there's a couple of levels later on where um, I really wanted to make sure on a lot of levels that there's a flow. So there are actually, not all of them, but some of them there's like I was a going to ask about that. Um, that was, that's a really um, Pac-Man element in that every level has an optimum path, if you know what it is kind of thing. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Uh, some of them, I'm, uh, well, they probably do. Some of them are more unintentional than others. Like the mm -hmm. first level of the second world where you get unlocked boost, I don't think there is a proper optimal path to that. And I did, sometimes right. I did struggle with some of the levels. So I looked at it and went, this level is actually quite fun without having that. Um, and and if I'd forced it on all, all of the levels, then I think it would have started to felt a little bit samey. Because basically, because of the way the mechanic works, I was yeah. trying to make a level so you didn't have to cross over yourself. So Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So the levels that do that feel awesome. And you're like, oh, wow, I've just managed to clip that. It feel, I'll tell you what it feels like, if I may. It feels a bit like playing, and this is a high compliment, it feels a bit like playing the uh, Pac-Man Championship Edition DX. Oh, cool. Um, okay. From a, which was one of the best games of 2010 for me, regardless of platform or whatever it ha it very much catches that that uh, that vibe oh well that's great i mean i love that game and, and and it was obviously i played it during development um and there was little bits of inspiration like i love how there are perfect ways you can go and you'll you'll, mm. you'll take the wrong turn in in that and then you'll go oh nah if i'd just done that then it would have been better um, so we definitely wanted that feeling and it is, and it's cause it's kind of escape vectors also got a little bit of a puzzle feel to it. It is something yeah. nice if once you complete a level, you kind of look at it and go on, Oh, well maybe if I'd done that or if I did this, then I could get a better, um, score. And, and we've obviously tied scoring mechanics into it. So when you, yeah. as you claim clean line, um, when you break that by detonating or by going over an, a, a bit of line you've already claimed, then your score multiplier resets um yes yeah so if you can complete a level in as you know one go as much of a one go as possible then you will get a higher score and presumably uh you can uh, vouch for the fact that it is possible to do every level with a platinum and without detonating uh, yeah, in yes. the game yeah 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 we were very anal about that so um bruce Good. um <laughs> did a lot of testing and and spent 
on every single level, making sure it is possible. Yes, so I can guarantee they are possible. Some of them are not easy, and there was a little no. bit of shouting and some explosives in the office when, when we were good, trying good. to get them. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Well, that replicates the experience of the of the real player. Um, yeah, and of course, being WeWare, it's not like you can put out a little two meg patch or something to uh, to fix any. Uh, mistakes once once it's out there it's out there isn't it there's, there's pretty no... much yeah so we can um if if the world was ending because of something we'd done in our game then we would be allowed to put a patch out but it really actually has... yes i ha- i am remembering i have updated a couple of we were games but it's unusual isn't it yeah no very unusual and nintendo don't um generally like it and i can kind of to be honest I can kind of understand why, because yeah. um, once we finish, one, from the user's point of view, it's kind of sucks if you're continually getting these content updates, and particularly on the PlayStation 3, I don't know who ever thought it was a good idea to download the whole blooming game whenever they do a patch, because, you know, mm. I just can't play um, Little Big Planet now, because I haven't played it in, I don't know, six to nine months, <laughs> and if I put it in, it's going to try and download probably 10 to 20 gigabytes worth of data. Six to nine months of uh, downloading. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's just, you know, that's not a good idea. Um and obviously Microsoft systems are a lot better because I think the maximum can be like four or eight megabytes or something like that. So it's relatively quick. Yeah. But even so, yeah. um, from from a developer's point of view with the iPhone, we're continually having to keep patching stuff into the into iPhone versions of games. And it, it, it means it stops you doing anything else because you're just looking at continuing to support your title. Whereas Nintendo are like, we want to make it... Mm forget about it well release it and then kind of forget about it after a couple of months and move on to something else so i kind of quite like that (laughs) yeah yeah um now i'm as you may have gathered uh an old man of the arcades and um one of the things i I also really like about escape factor chapter one is that it feels legitimately like a retro game in the sense that it doesn't feel like a kind of knowing pastiche to old games Mm -hmm. um it feels like uh a sort of a genuine homage in terms of feel look and feel and, and a big part of that is the music um the the sort of chip tunes from uh, a fellow called andrew kernick mm-hmm. um but he's not in-house is he what's your relationship with with andrew so he's uh yeah he's an audio engineer based in brisbane and um we basically have worked with him on on all the titles we've done so far so when i was doing pop we obviously wanted to get some music done and um i went on there's a website in australia called sumia which kind of links a lot of game developers together so i went on that and and found a couple of different audio developers and get, got them to audition basically and andrew was the one that kind of um impressed impressed me the most that they all got the same audition so i just asked them to um write a a soundtrack and describe pop and write asked them to write one song uh, um with the inspiration of like william orbit and um Mm. probably air or someone like that but particularly william orbit at the time and um andrew andrew kind of nailed it so we've kind of worked together ever since and and then uh, obviously on escape vector i mean what we generally do when we're when we're coming up with a musical soundtrack I mean, i'm quite particular about what i want in in many ways which i think frustrates the hell out of andrew sometimes but um we all our music's done in midi and the reason we do that is because one it keeps the file size down um yep. And two, it allows us to make it interactive. And that, that to me is really important because we're making a bit yeah. of interactive entertainment. Mm. Um, yeah, so... I, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, we recently had uh, James Milkey on the show who works with Tetsuya Mizuguchi, who is you know, kind of one of the fathers of mm-hmm. uh, making interactive uh, music within games or games that interact with music. Um, mm-hmm. And I did, uh, I did detect on, on playing uh, Escape Vector Chapter 1 that there is a relationship between 
how you're how well you're doing and what's going on and the sort of depth and the richness of the soundtrack that's being played yeah yeah definitely so um when you start a level the the music is relatively pared back and the, mm. the grid in the background it's not as obvious i don't think on the wii unfortunately as as we could have made it but the grid in the background there's like a main grid and a sub grid and they're they're pulsing yeah. in time to the music they are actually timed mm-hmm. to the music um and then as you as you play the level so the music starts off relatively pared paired back and, and not minimalist but it's it, it's it's not the whole track and then yeah. as you um, do different things in the level it, it's there's the basically three stages to the music so there's the bass level which is paired back there's a mid level and then there's the like full-on um, version and so what happens is um, when you're in level one if you are seen by an enemy you'll go up to level two and as soon as the, uh, the enemy stops seeing you you'll go back down to level one Mm, and then once you've got i think it's more than 50 percent of the level claimed you go up to level two um, and you'll stay there and then if you so if you then get seen by an enemy you'll go up to level three and then when you stop being seen by an enemy you'll you'll go back down to level two and then once you've opened the exit you're up at level three and you can't change if that makes sense yes it does yeah (laughs) it's uh it works really well it drives drives you on and and the intensity goes up um yeah i'm actually because i've been playing it today i'm doing i'm sort of doing that thing where if i close my eyes i'm seeing <laughs> the enemies coming towards me down a, down a path uh, um so uh you mentioned it earlier so I, I guess you can talk about it a little um and because you're your own boss you don't i don't know you have an nda or something um you mentioned spirit hunters inc which is mm-hmm. your next gaming project mm-hmm. uh light and shadow so it's coming in two sort of flavors yeah uh good and evil as it were and it's going to be dsi where yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about Spirit Hunters? I'll tell you anything you want, really. Um, so, okay. <laughs> we, we what are, is it? <laughs> it's an augmented reality. Um, kind of, we're kind of calling it an augmented reality social RPG. Is what we're calling it. So it's very Pokemon inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is, um, well, the basic idea started off is that I'd like to try and encourage kids to go out and explore the real world a little bit more and not just obviously sit indoors playing games because we get a bit of a bad rap for that. So um, the idea is that you take your DSi or your 3DS and um, you go to different places around the world and it can be anywhere and you pop open the game and you start scanning for spirits. And depending on the colors that are around you, the, the time of day and the level that you are, you will find different spirits uh, to to hunt, battle, and capture. Very cool. Mm. Uh, so it sounds almost a little like uh, a, a, a relation of um, Skylanders, the recent uh, Activision thing with the toys. Yeah, Only you don't have to buy the toys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day we can do toys. I really want to do it. the the. I'm so pleased the way the um the characters turned out. Actually, I'd really love to do them in kind of um those uh, what are they called? Those little um like plastic cool toys that they do i think the the gorillas did some figures relatively recently for their one of their albums and there's there's these collectibles that you get now like dunnies and um monies and all these sorts of things i don't know if you've maybe not heard of them anyway there is a there's a term to describe them i can't remember what they're called now um okay but uh yeah so no it's it's, there's 96 spirits in the game there's six different elements and, and when you start you you choose an element and you become a member of the spirit hunters inc um, company and you become a spirit hunter and you have to level up and you increase your rank which basically increases your title and standing within spirit hunters as you ink as you as you as you go on uh, and depending on the element that you choose you've got various strengths and weaknesses so you can choose ice and you'd be obviously be, you'd be weak to fire but you'd be strong against uh, water for example yeah. um, and then um, 
as you progress through the game, you're not locked into your element. So at level 25, you can purchase a second element and then you can swap between the two of them so that, you know, you're, by the end of the game, you, you'll be able to be any of the elements that you choose, but you can only be one at a time. So that's, uh, that's going to be DSiWare and 3DS. Where is it? There, will there be differences? Uh, anything involving 3D images? Um, no. So at the moment, uh, it is just going to be DSiWare, but because DSiWare okay. is compatible with the 3DS, and you can obviously buy it on the right. 3DS, it will it will work on the 3DS. So we've okay. um, we kind of we got so far along in development on DSi that we kind of thought it'd be better to finish it than to try and spend another year. Yeah, um, sure. Making my hair even grayer and <laughs> putting it on the 3DS. <laughs> But the version of Escape Vector Chapter 1, that is going to be a 3DS, uh, is going to 3DS, as in it will support 3D and things like that? Yes, yeah. So the plan is at the moment, um, we've actually started development on it. Um, Escape Vector uh, is coming to 3DS and we've already got it running as yeah, proper to 3D three, in 3DS. And the graphics, if you actually cool. play the, the Wii one, um, hmm. you can see that the graphics are kind of designed for 3D, so the grid starts further yeah, back. Yeah, it's like parallaxed or, or whatever, yeah. 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 Um, and obviously the camera, way the camera moves around um, will accentuate that. So it's probably not going to be for a while. Um, it probably won't be mm. till later next year because uh, there's only four of us and we work as hard and as fast as we possibly can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it'll be a bit higher higher resolution on 3DS as well, which, which I think will benefit the game. Um, but the 3D won't do anything for me because I can't see it, unfortunately. But, okay, um, not. But that's a shame. No, I'm, I'm one of them, one of them freaks. So, uh, but never mind. So, um, to conclude, uh, I think uh, with Skyward Sword coming out imminently, it presents uh, publishers such as yourselves with an opportunity because a lot of people, um, particularly our sort of audience, the, the hardcore, if you will, the enthusiast gamer, uh, maybe dusting off their Wii's, their, yes. their neglected consoles. Um, perhaps you could tell them <laughs> persuade them why this would be a good opportunity to actually just go online and visit the Wii shop and, and download your game um yeah well i think you know obviously the Wii's um for a lot of people has got gone out of favor a little bit because there's not been as many physical releases that have, have been of the quality and the caliber or say perhaps of um, skyward sword but i think you're right i think definitely um this christmas is looking really exciting and there's been like a skate vector we feel is a really um great game and and i think particularly for price it's only five us dollars i think what's yeah. it? it's about five quid probably in the us in the three, UK pound, well. three pound fifty oh, right, or thereabouts okay. so yeah, there you go bargain. so that's like a sandwich isn't it <laughs> a bit more than a sandwich but uh well it's a, maybe a sandwich and, and a bag of crisps or something yeah marks and spencer's wrap so there yeah. you go so you get uh, you get something i mean there's 30 levels um there's um five main worlds and one bonus world um which unlocks a view and pop and um there's a lot of depth. I mean, you've obviously covered a lot of the, the big points already. There's a lot of depth mm. and replayability. You kind of vector sort of levels up as you go on, so you get more boost and more detonating, bigger explosion radius to play with. And then there's yeah. a lot of the, the, a lot of the replayability comes within the the medal system, um, where you can get gold, silver, and bronze medals depending on how good you are on a particular level, and obviously on on all the achievements. So, you know, I would I would love for people to um, plug in their their Wii's and and spend their lunch money maybe <laughs> buying a copy of our <laughs> game. Um, and definitely maybe, you know, um, Skyward Sword is obviously going to be a big game. So maybe when you're taking a break from that, you can, you can enjoy something that's, that's slightly different and then jump back into Skyward Sword. Actually, touching on Skyward Sword, we've been really, really yes. lucky with Nintendo America. Um, I, uh, they have uh, said, so hopefully this is going to happen, that they're going to include flyers inside Skyward Sword, one of which is uh, going to advertise WiiWare. 
Um, oh, very good. Um, the one advertising we were will um, include a little bit about Escape Vector. Oh, that could be very that could be a very handy boost indeed. I would have thought. Yeah. Oh, let's um, hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 reviews have been been by and large incredibly kind, haven't they? And and deservedly mm. so. Um, yeah, we've been blown away by that. Actually, I mean, we we yeah. it's it's the thing I think a lot of people don't realise is that when you're working on it, you obviously you get so close to it and you love it. Um, and Bruce, who was testing a lot of it, just you know fell in love with the game, even despite having to played it to death. But um, you just can't you just can't tell you just don't know how people are going to react to it and particularly what the critics are going to say because graphically you know it's it's not pushing the the Wii in in any major sense and it's a very no. particular style of graphics and uh, and it is very retro inspired so um you're just never sure how people are going to take it but we, like we didn't ign for example they i'm sorry yeah. to reference another website but they don't no, really it's perfectly cool i was about to do the same thing <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't really respond to an awful lot of our emails because we're not you know we're not bungee we're not blizzard so we just didn't yeah. think they were going to do anything and then on day of release we get a nine out of ten by them yeah um we're like how one how did they get the game and two you know that's just incredible because we didn't even think they would pay any attention no um, it's fair, fair play to them for actually covering uh, a relatively you know sort of uh unpublicized release yeah yeah so yeah. You know, no it's, it's been great absolutely and yeah i advise Kane and rinse listeners to check it out because it really is very addictive um so with that i'd like to thank uh, nick for joining us on Kane and rinse this uh, very issue of the podcast thank you once again oh not at all thanks very much for having me and um listening to my ramblings <laughs> no excellent ramblings indeed um cheers 